Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Unheard. Tony Blair is the former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. To some, he will always be the guy who took us into the Iraq war on false pretenses. To others, he's a hero from a better, more optimistic era. He hasn't actually been prime minister since 2007, but he seems to be as present as ever, sometimes behind the scenes, sometimes in front of the camera. So what is he up to? What is his organization, the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, all about? Unheard's political editor, Tom McTague, has spent months looking at the activities of the TBI, talking to current and former workers, associates, critics, and friends that takes us right into the heart of the world of Tony Blair. Tom's here in the studio to tell us about it. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. So paint the scene for us. What is a, a day in the life of Tony Blair like right now? Oh, well, it's, it's amazing. It could be anything. So he could be in his house in Connaught Square in central London. He would then come outside with police protection officers into his armoured BMW provided by the state, of course, and he would be driven to his offices just behind the BBC. These are nice, new, modern offices. And he would there you as you when you walk into these offices, there are row after row of you know bright young things, bright young workers who are there working for Tony Blair with different offices all around. And of course, there he is in the in his own office. He could be welcoming a politician from India. Bill Clinton would come in to give him a, a great big bear hug, as somebody put it to me, or any any kind of really important person. He is like a CEO of a of a giant corporation. So he still has a red box, is that right? He still has a, a, a like when you're prime minister or a yep. senior cabinet minister, you get a box with your papers in it. Is there something similar? Yeah, absolutely. So this is the the routine that is established whenever you're prime minister or whenever you're a cabinet minister, you have a box and papers are put into that box and you take them away of the evening or at the weekend. You work through them, you make notes and you give them back to your civil servants. Tony Blair has managed to replicate this in the private sector. So he has a box. It's not a briefcase or a tatty old kind of red briefcase like it was, but it's a digital box. So you get papers go into it, and he can access that from wherever he is in the world. And he's always traveling. Somebody told me that he's away 60-70% of the time. So he could be in Africa, he could be in Manhattan, he could be in uh, Indonesia. And so he accesses his box, he works on it, he provides the comments, and they go back to his staff, just as if he was Prime Minister. 
Yeah, so he's 70 years old. Right. He's been retired for many years, nominally. Yes. But he seems to be almost carrying on as if he's still prime minister. Absolutely. This is what strikes me. You know, he's the, the, the work ethic that he has, the capacity to keep going, the drive to keep going, to build this organisation. This has got 800 people who work for this organisation. So, for example, right now on the Tony Blair Institute's jobs page, there are jobs in, there are four jobs in Abu Dhabi, three in Eastern Europe, two in each of the Philippines, Rwanda, Athens, the Ivory Coast, one in Israel, Indonesia, Kenya, New York, Nigeria, Senegal, Ghana, and Miami. And then that's before you even get to the numerous jobs in London, Singapore, and Delhi. This is across the entire world. So what is this vast organisation that he's been building up? What's the point of it? Well, this is an interesting question that even people who have worked there come away and they're not quite sure exactly what it what it's for. It's for lots of things. It's a consultancy business in, in some respects. So it, it consults world leaders rather than companies about how to become more efficient. He will advise them on how to build a presidential delivery unit or a policy unit. And and to some cynics, that sounds very much like he's advising them how to build what Blair created in number 10 15 years ago or, or 20 years ago. So there's that side of the business. There's also essentially a think tank, which is called the policy unit. So again, he's replicated what he had in number 10. He has a delivery unit himself. That's the consultancy business. He has a, um, a policy unit, which is the think tank full of bright people coming up with bright ideas, sending him policy papers on everything from how to manage AI to what to do about Brexit or COVID or vaccines, digital passports, the whole lot. So is there a kind of commercial part of this organisation and a not-for-profit or charity part? And are they kept separate? No, it's a not-for-profit umbrella organisation. So he created, after he left office, multiple organisations, a consultancy business that was a profit-making business. This is what got him into trouble because he was providing advice to quite unsavoury, basically, dictators in foreign regimes. And yeah. that, there were a lot of press stories around that in the early years of his post-premiership. Absolutely. So that part of the business ran alongside other things that he set up, charities. So he had a sports foundation in the northeast. He had an Africa initiative. I think he has a faith foundation. Lots of different bits. And what he did is he folded them all into one organisation called the Tony Blair Institute. When was that? And that was in 2017. So that was the height of the kind of populist revolt, if you like. You'd had Jeremy Corbyn elected as Labour leader in 2015. You then had Brexit and Donald Trump um, happen in 2016. So you had this moment which, according to those who know him, sort of shocked him. And he felt the urge to get back into British politics more directly. Not just British politics, global politics. He felt like... That's the name. Global change is what he's after. Absolutely. And at that moment, he set up this thing called Resurrecting the Centre, which is a body within the... Tony Blair Institute that was doing that exact job. It was trying to rebuild centrist politics from what they considered a kind of threat from the populist left and the populist right. So there's a for-profit or at least a revenue-generating consultancy arm Mm -hmm. and then there's a kind of think tank policy unit. And are they staffed separately? Do people move between them? I think they are seen as slightly separate. They, they're seen as complementary in that you have, to for any world leader, they need ideas and policies and then they need to know how to implement them. And this is a lesson that 
Tony Blair had learned himself in, in government, where he felt that actually he was only getting good at the job towards the end of his time and that he didn't understand how to wield power to use the civil service to actually do things. And so that is one of the, his lessons. And so within the organisation, you have, yes, this, this um, business almost, but the profits are then redirected within the organisation to things that he wants to do. That consultancy arm will also offer um, consultancy pro bono to African governments that, that can't afford it. So even that bit, he would consider developmental charity philanthropic. So you've been looking at the accounts, at the ways that revenue is generated, obviously to employ 800 people, mm-hmm. some of them on salaries above 500,000, yep. it's going to cost a lot of money. Yep. And sure enough, uh, revenue in the last year that's declared is $81 million. That's for 2021. So do you have any sense of where that comes from? So I think it, it almost entirely comes from that consultancy arm. So about, I think it's $79 million comes from that. So nothing else makes any money. You know, they're, they're not selling uh, policy papers to, to somebody. You know, this is, this is, this is how his organisation works. You consult for uh, governments across the world and, and businesses? I'm not sure about that. So they, he is linked to businesses, but they get donations from businesses rather than providing consultancy, as far as I understand it. He must be making, charging lots of money to governments in the Middle East, in Central Asia, Eastern Europe, to be able to provide services pro bono in Africa. I mean, it sounds a lot like the Clinton initiative, doesn't it? It feels like he's taken inspiration from what Bill Clinton did. He left his presidency young. He obviously wanted to have a career afterwards. And he invented this new type of kind of post-presidency where he continued walking around with extremely important people, having huge amounts of donations. And it got Bill Clinton into some trouble. There was a lot of controversy in the Hillary Clinton campaign around whether donations to the charitable arm were in some way, there was any danger of them bleeding into the political or or the, uh, the other parts is there any sense of that same peril, do you think, with the uh, Tony Blair? Absolutely, I think there is. I mean, I think the difference is that Hillary Clinton was still having a political role, whereas uh, Tony Blair can say, well, I have no political role, my wife doesn't have a political role. Um, but it is exactly the same setup, as far as I can see, with the same essential um, problems and dilemmas, which is you get donations from very wealthy men, and I think we'll discuss this from uh, Oracle, um, the Oracle founder, mm. And, and so the Tony Blair Institute will push for tech to be a central part of how mm. any government can deliver services. So it wants health records uh, stored online, digital uh, records, digital pass- passports, all of those kind of things. But at the same time, he's getting money from people who obviously provide those services. Yeah, Let, let's dig into this because this is a really interesting example. So Larry Ellison, uh, who is thought of as the world's fourth richest man, estimated fortune of $140 billion. He was running his own charity, his own not-for-profit, and that seems to have been wound up. And instead, he's just pouring his money into the Tony Blair Foundation. Is that what's happening? That's certainly one aspect of it. He has, um, he he gives money, Larry Ellison, to uh, foundations in the States, I think, to try and cure, uh, find a cure for cancer and those kind of things. He's been very interested in finding ways to slow down ageing and... Um, uh, so he has. He's always been interested in that medical side, as far as um, the biographies of him uh, paint that picture. He also has this element of um, stop-start. You know, he'll he'll pick a grand project 
really go for it. And if it's not working, he'll close it down very quickly. So that's what happened with the Larry Ellison Foundation, which strangely enough to, um, to British ears was f- uh, centred in, uh, headquartered in London. And it was run by a man called Matthew Simmons, former economist journalist who had written a biography of Larry Ellison and is better known really today as Carrie Johnson's father. So Boris Johnson's father-in-law. So uh, Matthew Simmons was running this foundation in London and then overnight it was shut down or the, the, the team was disbanded in London. And it was about this time that he started donating more and more money into the Tony Blair Institute. I think so did you try to contact Matthew Simmons? I did, yeah. And he, he put the phone down on me. So he answered and then just hung up. Yeah. There's something called the Institute for Transformative Medicine, which is this Ellison body. So that's partly in Los Angeles and partly in Oxford. They created something called the Global Health Security Consortium. Yes. Together with scientists at the University of Oxford. And it says that the reason for this was to support leaders around the world to help them prepare for the health security challenges of tomorrow. And at that time, he also began giving more and more money to the TBI, the the Tony Blair Institute. How much money are we talking here? He was donated, I think, $30 million in the first donation that I that I found, and then $80 million, and then $90 million after that. So it's a lot of money that we're talking about. It's the equivalent to Tony Blair Institute's entire uh, turnover uh, for, for one year. So that, they're, they're significant amounts of money. This is a, is a really important partnership for Tony Blair. And, and, and as you say, they work together on this, creating this, um, this body in Oxford, where it's a, a partnership between Larry Ellison's foundation and the Tony Blair Institute, with scientists. And the idea is that, and this is central to what Tony Blair has always tried to do, which is, uh, how do I uh, make government better? How do I allow governments to be more effective? That's the central idea behind his consultancy. And so he, they have come up with this plan, which is when the next pandemic rolls in, you will have an institute already set up. It will be able to look at um, you know, what is going on and respond much more quickly and it will offer its services to governments around the world. Because Tony Blair was very vocal mm-hmm. during the pandemic. He was very keen to push for vaccine passports, for yep. example, which if you think about his history with ID cards, yep. shouldn't I guess shouldn't be that surprising. Yep. But this sort of merges into the Larry Ellison project. There's something called the Tech for Development Programme. That's another Blair Ellison tie-up, is it? Yes, exactly. And it's, um, it's helping uh, developing countries or governments in, in the developing world to access digital records of their citizens on the cloud in a way that would say, let's say, take vaccinations. You, you could, it would help you know which of your citizens has had a vaccination. And in a, in a developing world, that is obviously more difficult than it is in a, in a country like the UK, where you have uh, the NHS, you have records like that. So this is something that they are working together on. Mm. But it's obviously controversial. It's controversial, much more so in Europe or in the United States, where we are reticent to give our private health data and put it onto a cloud owned by a, um, you know, a, a multi-billion dollar corporation. Because in his private company, um, nothing to do with Tony Blair, Larry Ellison has bought something called Cerna, which is an electronic health record company, the biggest purchase of his life, he's put here, for $30 billion. So he's clearly betting big that digital health records are going to be a highly profitable sector in his normal commercial 
operations. Yeah. And meanwhile, he's giving large amounts of money. And herein lies the the potential conflict for organizer for for the Tony Blair Institute. You know, not only is it dependent on tech money that it then pushes tech solutions to problems in the world, it is pushing a policy which is clearly um, would be beneficial to uh, to Oracle if it was. Uh, to be successful, you know, if it, it, I don't think in sub-Saharan Africa is going to make Oracle very much money. It's a very t- small market. Um, but if it can be shown to work in sub-Saharan Africa, why couldn't it then work in the United States or in Britain or anywhere? Uh, and so, who knows what, whether you know it's entirely philanthropic or not? I don't. I don't know. But certainly, in the United States, Ellison is committed to this idea. Um, for his company to make commercial profit. There's kind of two aspects to this, aren't there? There's the potential for conflicts of interest, and I think it would make people a bit uneasy to feel like a formerly democratically elected politician is now swimming in so much money, part of which is being donated by companies that clearly have an agenda. People might be uncomfortable with that. Mm-hmm. And then separately, there's the sort of world view that perhaps both Larry Ellison and Tony Blair share Mm-hmm. which is that there are central, centralised technology solutions to many of our problems. And the more data can be aggregated to the centre, the better. And that will make things more efficient to solve. But it, in terms of civil liberties, in terms of what the future looks like, to a lot of people that feels a bit dystopian. Absolutely. I think uh, people, anyone who gets close to Tony Blair will tell you that he is a kind of utopian tech futurist. You know, he he believes tech is the is the future. It's the thing that the British government is just not in, on top of. It's almost no Western state is using it properly. Um, and it's a little bit like he, how he used to talk about globalisation in a kind of fatalist way that it is it is there. There's no point fighting it because it just exists. It is happening. It's like, com- it's like complaining about the weather, I think, is what he said about globalisation. And people say that he talks in the same way about tech. You know, there's why, why would you fight this? Of course, di- records are going to be held digitally. Mm. So we have to learn to, to work with that and it will become more efficient and all the rest. But at the same time, I think there is a, a sort of deep irony in that Blair sees himself always looking to the future, not particularly interested with the past, always looking to the future. And he, he almost thinks he can see into the future. You know, the future was Europe. The future was globalization. The future is now tech. But to, I think, the younger generation, that obviously The future feels... was a free and democratic Iraq at one point. Exactly. So actually, he doesn't see the future. We're, we're no longer in Europe, evidently. You know, we are... Uh, and, and globalisation caused such a backlash that it kind of undermined the world that he tried to create himself with Europe as, as this kind of, um, you know, liberal leader at the centre of Europe. You know, that, that world has, has gone, mm. uh, in part because I don't think we managed that process of globalization very well. And you see the same story in the United States. So I think there is a, a legitimate criticism that says, well, you're too naive about this. And actually, the young, you're almost giving away your age as well by, the, by your naivety about it. You see it sort of wide-eyed and open. It's all about possibilities. Younger generation go, that looks scary to me. I don't want Oracle owning my health records. I don't want... I mean, you, you could say that you're being too generous here. Uh, by saying that it's a sort of naive optimism. Alternatively, it's a defensive in part that he wants to prove right the v- version of the world that he started to create and he wants mm-hmm. to defend it and therefore sees other visions of how the world might operate as 
competitive to his legacy. Uh-huh. And there's a kind of power grab there. Uh, it's not very democratic. It doesn't seem to be overly concerned with people's scruples, people's sense of what a beautiful life looks like or what freedom might look like. Perhaps they don't want to share their data. Perhaps they don't want to, technology to answer all of their problems. There's a kind of arrogance there. Uh-huh. And there's a sense that the clever people like him in the center should really solve the world's problems, whether people want them or not. Yeah, I think there are two issues that I thought about having uh, worked on this on this piece. One is this um, sense almost of, of, as you say, Tony Blair looking back to his legacy and seeing it crumble and seeing it crumble quite quickly after he left office. You had the financial crisis, which I think made a lot of people feel was that was those previous ten years was that all built on sand? Did that actually did that mean anything? Um, and and his struggle to kind of come to terms with the way politics is moving, which is not how he foresaw it moving, and and trying to fight back against that, and and this caused problems within the institute. So you had a situation where, in this um, attempt to rebuild the centre. You had people on the left who thought, well, of course, he means the centre-left when he talks about rebuilding the centre, because he is from the centre-left, right? He is the Labour Party man. And we need to bring in, we need to learn why people are angry with us, and we need to create new policies to create a new centre-left. And actually, more people around him, including Tony himself, I think, actually felt, no, the populists on either side are the enemy, and I don't mind working with the centre-right and the centre-left. The centre, they are us, whether they're conservative or progressive. And and that is surely part of the problem that Mm. has existed. You know, the sense of the blob, that nothing changes, that they don't listen to us, that they're not answering our concerns about globalisation, about tech, about any of these things. And so I think there is a, a, a significant criticism about his sort of inability to change to the world that is happening. And that he does share in common, perhaps, with the Clintons, Mm -hmm. with all the politicians of that generation, who had this vision of a kind of globalised, technocratic world order, where the problems of history were in the past. And they're kind of affronted that other people have different ideas, and they see it as a danger to their world. And he's absolutely at the centre of that, isn't he? Refusing to listen to what populist voters of left or right are complaining about and instead sort of doubling down and trying to squish them. I I think there is something in that. And I I also think as well, if you look at the other lesson I took from from digging into this was you're talking about a world that exists beyond our uh, the ordinary person. It is uh, full of powerful people like the Clintons and and, uh, the Blairs world leaders and uh, plutocratic businessmen in the United States or wherever they are. And they fly on private jets paid for by billionaires to fly to conferences. And then they fly back and they essentially agree on almost everything, whether it's foreign policy or whether mm. it's domestic policy, that populism is, the, is, you know, is a threat to the democratic order, to the liberal order, all of those, all of those things. And it's very hard to see how that is, um, how you can hold those people to account who are still powerful and yet they're not elected politicians. So they're still pursuing the same agenda that they obviously consider to be a good thing. Mm. But how do you how do you, how do you hold them to account? And it's and we in the West can hold them to account much more easily than say if you're a Malawian or a or a Nigerian or um, who 
sees that their government has employees paid for by the Clinton, uh, by the Clintons or the Blairs, uh, actually working in the centre of their government. You know, they're trying. They, you know, from the Clinton and Blairs perspective, they're doing good. But how do you hold somebody like that to account? How do you say, well, what are you paying for? What are you getting in response? You know, so I think there is a, a, a level of uh, a problem about inca- accountability and power mm. in this world, this kind of global world that we don't see. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So what about money? Because I think a lot of people watching this were already upset about Tony Blair and, to be fair, other former politicians and prime ministers who then make absolute fortunes. Uh-huh. And we know that he has a wonderful large country house uh-huh. that looks a little bit like Chequers or is in the same part of the country yeah. as the country house that the prime minister had. He has his large London uh, mansion. He makes a lot of money. Uh-huh. Do you think that is part of it? Do you think it's... I mean, it should be said that Tony Blair does not make any money from the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. That's that's certain. He doesn't take a salary. I don't know how businesses work like this. Can you, you know, I'm sure he can expense things. Um, mm. That is a... The, the, Private planes, travel. Travel and meals. hotels. I'm sure that that is a, a perk. I don't know how that works internally, but he doesn't take a salary. So do you think making money is part of this plan for him? Well, I think the plan is to stay relevant. It's to be a, somebody. It's to have power. Um, because without power, you can't do anything. And he wants to continue doing things, for good or bad. And so to have power, you need wealth. You need to employ people. You need to be able to send people places, to do people favours, to do politicians favours that you like, and to work against politicians you don't like, to come up with policy ideas that you require 
staff to do that. So I think it's about, for, for, for Tony Blair, it's almost maintaining a status that he had as prime minister. And I think he has actually done that. But to start with, you needed money to do yeah. that. And I think- Also, it's problematic because it's power without accountability. Mm-hmm. It's not democratic. No. And it's one thing if you're elected to be prime minister and you're exerting that kind of power. But once you've been booted out or you've resigned, I think a lot of people will feel, why should you have power anymore? You're, you're just an ordinary person like the rest of us. To build a kind of quasi-government around yourself with this scale and this amount of influence, it's a new thing and it doesn't feel democratic. No, it doesn't. But it sort of highlights, though, a world that just isn't democratic and that already exists. So it, we can see how undemocratic it is because it's Tony Blair and we feel uneasy about it. And I think rightly so. Uh, and the same with the Clintons. But of course, that happens with, you know, the CEO of of a, of a giant charity, Oxfam or somebody like that, um, or at the UN or any of any global corporation, any of the big tech companies, they have enormous amounts of power. Clearly, and they're not, and that's not democratic. So, so you know, I suppose people are not happy about it. Well, exactly, and this is part of the populist revolt. And I think this is this is something that they struggle to to deal with. As somebody put it to me, who used to work for Blair, it's like they were they were fighting against the populists. They were trying to save democracy from their offices in Mayfair. You know, mm. and, and can you really do that? You know, you're surrounded by hedge funds. You don't go out into the places that actually voted for Brexit or for Trump. Mm. Uh, and you don't say, why are you not happy with the system that I built, the world that I built? Why have you rejected it? Let's give a little bit of another aspect of this some attention, which is the international, the foreign aspects mm-hmm. of the Tony Blair Institute, outside the UK and other countries. You looked into an example in Malawi. Tell us about what happened there. Yeah, so uh, Malawi is a um, is an obvious place to look because it's a former British colony that is extremely poor and dependent on um, foreign donations. So I think 40% of its government's budget is uh, comes from donations. So uh, once again, I think you can see how on earth as a Malawian do you hold that money to account? That is not coming from you. That is being as coming from outside with strings attached to achieve uh, goals set from outside. Um, so it was an interesting uh, case study. And in in Malawi, you had uh, you've had lots of political turmoil. You had um, when Tony Blair first went into Malawi. I think it was in two thousand and twelve. A new leader had come in that they rated. She was called Joyce Banda. We had somebody speak to the former president of Malawi, and she painted the scene, which I thought was fascinating and, and telling. That not long after her election, Tony came to see her with his wife, and he said, "Look, what, you know, essentially, what can I well, do they to just help?" Flew in. Flew in. As if on holiday to Malawi. <laughs> I don't, I don't dropped know. Dropped in on the president. They dropped in on the president. I'm sure they, they gave her a call and they said, look, you know, essentially what can we do to help? Can we move people around? We'll move people around that we've got in Africa and we'll send you, you know, three of our people. So three Tony Blair employees go and they work directly for the Malawian government um, in their presidential delivery unit, I think it was. You know, that government collapses quite soon after this in this extraordinary corruption scandal, um, Cashgate, I think they call it in Malawi, where somebody was, uh, an employee was found, a civil servant was found with $300,000 in his boot. Um, Sounds, sadly, not a unique story. Not not unique, nothing to do with uh, the Tony Blair Institute. 
And it was, but it was a, it was a scandal. A lot of Western governments suspended all um, funding to Malawi at the time while they had looked into it. $150 million worth of don't, uh, funding had gone missing uh, in, in Malawi. And actually, it was part of this um, tech attempt to make um, the government more efficient. They introduced a new technology solution where you could pay... Um, um, civil servants, I think, and you could uh, using this system, and you could move money around. But then it was abused, and it was used to steal money. Uh, so again, you see the unintended consequences of of action. Tony Blair, whose system was it? We don't know. But what was the arrangement? Was the Malawian government paying for this technology? Yeah. Who held the license to it? Was this a connected to someone who was donating money to the foundation? These are the questions which we should find answers to. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it's worth in all of these countries looking at the effects of Western money and influence and power. There's obviously lots of people in, in Africa who see a kind of element of white saviorism about this, whether it is the Clintons or Bill and Melinda Gates or Tony Blair. They see somebody who they're cynical about it. You can read articles about it that are published in Nigeria that say, you know, beware of, you know, the European man coming, um, you know, with gifts, essentially. Uh, and so Tony Blair pulled out of, um, Tony Blair Institute pulled out of Malawi, and it came back when a, a new leader was elected in, in 2020, similar arrangement, people are sent in, they help, they, they work inside um, the government itself. Uh, and the government has a presidential delivery unit, I think it probably has a policy unit, you know, it tries to create a Miniature Tony Blair Downing Street. In exactly. And I think there is an irony. You speak to anyone in, in Whitehall and you say, you know, our system is terrible. <laughs> our system has failed. It failed terribly during many of the crises over the recent years and pandemic or, um, uh, or Iraq. You know, all of these things where the system actually didn't work very well. And Tony Blair, ironically, kind of agrees with that. You know, he doesn't think the system is very efficient. He thinks the British state is not working. But when a new president crops up in an African country, it's possible or maybe even likely they might get a visit from someone from the Tony Blair Institute. Well, that's saying, what happened in, in what Nigeria. What can we do for you? Yeah, that's what happened in Nigeria, where the, the piece that I referenced earlier, where they were sort of saying, beware. I think I've got the quote here. In June, Nigeria's Guardian newspaper said that Blair was a, quote, self-serving lobbyist projecting dubious altruistic inclinations and he warned the country's new president to be wary of foreign do-gooders so that's in nigeria's guardian paper this yeah. year yes yeah and you know you read that and and they talk about british colonialism they talk about um britain's involvement in zimbabwe there is this kind of uh sense you know understandable sense that you shouldn't mm. trust uh, europeans and and he, th- that, that journalist talks about um, how he had been a reporter in Washington and he had seen how lobbyists in Washington, they like to pose uh, for a picture, a sort of, a, a, what do they call it, a grin, and, a greet and grin. And then they'll put that poster on the picture on the wall and it shows, it kind of is a reflection of power. Um, you know, if you can shake hands with Bill Clinton or you can shake hands with Tony Blair. And he was making the argument that that is what is happening in a way, that for the African leader, look, I'm a big player. I, Tony Blair flies in to see me and I shake his hands. And for Tony Blair, he obviously can say, well, he knows X number of African leaders. He's on personal terms with and them. They might be customers of the institute in they, some way. They might be, or they just have his WhatsApp number or a mobile phone mm. number and mm. they give him a call. Last month, I mean, we're in August now, we're talking about 
July, mm -hmm. there was a huge conference that the Blair Foundation put on. Mm -hmm. You attended. Tell us what happened. Yeah, I just thought what was so remarkable about it. Was, what was it called, first of all? It was the Future of Britain uh, conference. Right. Uh, so again, every obsessed with the future and this idea that you can see into the future and you can help deliver it. Um, and it was, you know, a, a gathering of the centrists. It was uh, Emily Maitlis and John Sopel uh, hosted it. And Tony Blair was there throughout. And he had messages, video messages from Emmanuel Macron, an interview with Henry Kissinger, an onstage interview with Ben Wallace, the outgoing defence secretary. And then the sort of uh, piece de resistance was um, Keir Starmer on stage with uh, Tony Blair interviewing interviewing one another, really, or Blair interviewing Keir Starmer, and almost sort of passing the baton, saying, he's one of us. And there was this sort of great release in the, in the audience as they cheered and clapped. So you feel like Keir has now been officially anointed by Blair as his acceptable successor? I think so. I think that was what was happening. Although I do think there is a tension there still between them, in that I, I think Blair sees... Starmer as as a, an acceptable leader who's who has moved the party back towards uh, where he had the the party, but I think he he is not convinced that he's as reformist as he wants him to be. And I think on Starmer's part, actually, he said this in the conference that he doesn't see the world quite like Tony Blair. He doesn't think that this is about the centrists versus the rest. And actually, from Keir's Starmer's perspective, he sees it as the left versus the rest. And so I think that is a difference, and I think you will see that that tension. But I, I I thought it was really interesting to watch him interact with the room. It was like not only was he anointing Starmer, but it was almost as if he was kind of welcomed back. You know, he was walking around a room, he was stopping for selfies. Labour politicians were stopping to have their pictures with him, to talk to him. Um, he seemed relaxed and confident, mm. and, you know, he was back. And this is a big budget, glossy Enormous. affair. I mean, we've both been to party conferences by the main governing yeah. parties here in the UK. and They're desperate affairs. <laughs> they're quite often a little bit shoddy. They're, you know, famously, Theresa May had signs falling off behind her. <laughs> exactly. Things don't hold together that well. But here, in Tony Blair's world, it's, it's at an, in a different level. Yeah, somebody said it was like America does British politics. Or I think actually something more like you know, Silicon Valley doing... Uh, British politics. This was an enormous screen behind him, just incredibly slickly put together. It had great food, you know, it was the healthy salads and all day, you know, a, a drinks reception in the evening in a, in a very fancy restaurant, just, uh, sorry, a hotel just over the road from Westminster. You know, this was what the Labour Party and the Conservative Party would like to put on, but probably can't afford to. You know, that's what it felt like. This was, this was the slickest... Well, they don't have access to the money. I mean, no. that's the reality. British political parties have to just raise it through donations, whilst obviously Larry Ellison is not giving them X numbers of millions of pounds. Absolutely. But I, I also, I don't think you get at the Labour Party or the Conservative Party messages from Emmanuel Macron. You know, this is the, the sort of, the, he is the anointed one, really. I think if Blair was to choose anyone, he'd probably have Emmanuel Macron uh, run Britain if he could. But, you know, he is the Blairite candidate. I, I just I just thought it was, it, there was obviously so much money um, and so much thought going into it. And I, But I, again, I think it's really about projecting influence and relevance and power you know that people go to him now 
because because he's built something so big. Am I right that one person at that conference compared Tony Blair's world to Goodbye Lenin, the movie? <laughs> Tell us about that. Well, it was somebody who um, used to work for Tony Blair and said, yeah, he had this sense that he was in this film, Goodbye Lenin, where, uh, for those who haven't seen it, it's when uh, somebody has a coma, goes into a coma before the Berlin Wall falls and they wake on the other side when it is down and its communism has has gone. And she was a committed socialist. And so the son, the protective son, tries to protect his mother from this from this reality that would be too shocking for her and that he fears it would be bad for her health. So he constructs this world in which it still exists. The Berlin Wall is still up and socialism is still working. And, and Tony Blair is still prime minister in this parallel then. Exactly. He's still flying around the world. He's still uh, just as important. And, you know, Brexit hasn't happened. Donald Trump hasn't been elected. You know, the third way is still in charge. Is the more sinister or at least more worrying alternative? That almost sounds quite sweet or endearing that he's surrounded by people who are pretending he's still in power. Is the more worrying alternative that he is actually still in power? I mean, we have what is most likely the future prime minister being anointed by him, taking ideas from him. He appears to be in touch with everyone. Maybe it's not a pretense. It's not cosplay. He is actually in charge. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say in charge, but I would say that he is powerful. And that what he has done is quite remarkable and completely different to any other prime minister, former prime minister. You know, John Major went and chaired a uh, you know, cricket club. And Tony Blair has uh, created a global corporation with 800 people um, that work for him that he can send to different governments around the world. And so, yeah, I think actually he, he is powerful. I don't think he is deluded that he's not prime minister. Or I think he craves the ability to still be powerful, as powerful as he was as Prime Minister. And I think in that he's succeeded. Thanks for telling us about him. Thank you. Well, if you're watching Mr Blair and feel unfairly represented, no reason why you should be. I thought Tom was extremely fair. Please come on the show and tell Tom and I what you are really up to. In the meantime, we will continue to pay close attention to the money, the political activity and the policy agenda of the most powerful non-Prime Minister in British history. Thanks for tuning in. This was Unheard. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.